Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 830 with Dr. Robert Waldinger. Bob has got a boatload of insight from the world's longest scientific study on happiness. Maybe you've heard of this Harvard study. It's so awesome. We are going to dig into some of those takeaways, which have huge impact for your work and your life. So you'll learn one, the number one stress regulator and how to cultivate it in your life. Two, a pair of the biggest happiness myths to debunk. And three, how to foster warm, authentic relationships with one key question. And if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we reference, please visit us over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP830. And if you haven't been to awesomeatyourjob.com, I've got a little bit to say. One, welcome new folks. I do see an influx of those around January historically. So I want to give a little bit of the spiel here. And loyal listeners, if you've heard this a hundred times, please feel free to skip a minute or two. But here is the dealio. One, I'm so thrilled you're here. Thank you. It's great to have you. If you want to get started, I might suggest you go right to the very beginning, scroll to the top of your feed or sort by oldest and see episode 000, start here, and ABCDEF to give you a bit of an introductory sampler six-pack for six of the key topic areas that we tend to cover a lot, so you get a nice little taste of what all is going on here. I also recommend you check out the website, awesomeatyourjob.com, which has a boatload of nifty resources from the full text transcripts of this episode and all 830 episodes. Every episode tagged with a topic and subtopic and the competency covered, so you can jump right to something that matters for you. Oh yeah, and with the transcripts, that means they're all searchable. So you can pop in that magnifying glass right there at the top of the website and search for keywords related to some issues you might want to dig into. And then we also got the Gold Nugget Summaries, which is an email subscription. We summarize the actionable wisdom each guest shares in an email you can read in about one, two, three minutes. And that goes right to your inbox each day the episode goes live. And when you subscribe to the Gold Nuggets, you also unlock the whole archive, the treasure trove of 830 of these summaries, which you can read on demand with that schnazzy little password you can input right there on the website, awesomeatyourjob.com. And that's all free. So all that stuff I mentioned has $0 cost to you. So enjoy. So that's our story. Here's Bob's story. Robert Waldinger is a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Massachusetts General Hospital, and co-founder of the Lifespan Research Foundation. Dr. Waldinger received his AB from Harvard College and his MD from Harvard Medical School. He is a practicing psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, and he directs a psychotherapy teaching program for Harvard psychiatry residents. He's also a Zen master and teaches meditation in New England and around the world. Robert is the co-author of the book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness. Big thanks to Bob for sharing his wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free 
at linkedin.com slash be awesome. And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Bob. Bob, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, Bob, I'm so excited to hear about your wisdom from uh, your research project, as well as you're also a Zen master. How does one become a Zen master? What does that consist of? A lot of meditation and a lot of training. It was years and years of training in Zen. And so who bestows the title of Zen master? Or how does it... I'm thinking of like a chess grandmaster, like I know how that works. How does one become a official Zen master? Well, there are no points involved. Okay. <laughs> it's, um, Zen is essentially an apprenticeship. And so we end up studying with teachers. I studied with a teacher and eventually she gave me authorization to teach. It's called Dharma Transmission. And now I am a fully transmitted Zen teacher, a Roshi. That's what it's called. Okay. Well, that's just so fascinating. I took one class on Zen Buddhism in college, so that's makes sense of, of my background, but it was fascinating. I'm curious, any particular insights that you found that was transformational in a very practical sense in terms of, huh, I am more effective and happier because of this perspective or insight or discovery? Probably the biggest insight for me has been that everything constantly changes. Okay. And on the one hand, that may sound trivial, but on the other hand, when you really sit on a cushion hour after hour and you watch all the things that come up in your mind and then pass away, times when you start to get furious or are euphoric and then in a moment it's gone, it really helps you to notice that some of the things we think are so terrible and are always going to be that way never stay around that long. Yeah. Similarly, a lot of the joys pass away and that it's a helpful perspective to realize that everything comes and passes away. That is powerful. And I heard someone once asked Daniel Kahneman something like, what's a, what's a huge insight everyone needs to understand? And he said that nothing is as important as we think it is while we're thinking about it. And I see a little overlap. There's like, whoa. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, when you're thinking about something, it is the thing. <laughs> yeah. But like yeah. these drapes, <laughs> that is absolutely mission critical, for example. But really, it doesn't matter that much. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We have a saying, don't believe everything you think. Okay. That one of the things you see when you meditate a lot is how the mind just makes up stories right? We're just constantly making up stories about the world. And we need to do that in a lot of ways to get through. Like I had a story that I was going to come talk to you Mm -hmm. right now. And that's helpful because it got me 
to get here for you and for us to have this conversation. But many of our stories are just completely out of touch with what's real. And the more we can have perspective on that, the less we suffer and the less we make other people suffer. That was powerful. We had a great conversation with Renee Rodriguez, who talks about framing and storytelling. And it's powerful to convey a message to somebody else, but also really showing a light on, whoa, we're telling stories to ourselves as well all the time. And the stories we choose and entertain and give airtime to in our brains really affect the way we see things and feel about things. And it's powerful stuff. Absolutely. All right, Bob, but we're already starting deep. So I think that's a good backdrop for talking about your latest book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness. And and I'm excited to chat about this because I've read a few articles about this study. Could you first and foremost orient us? What is this legendary study? It is the longest study of adult life that's ever been done. The longest study of the same people as they go through their whole lives. So starting with a group of teenagers in 1938, following them all the way through adulthood into old age, almost all have passed away. And now we're studying their kids and their kids are mostly baby boomers. So now it's been two generations, thousands of people. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I understand that we have two populations, one, Harvard undergraduates, and two, folks in a more disadvantaged community situation. Could you expand on that? Yes. In fact, they were two studies that didn't even know about each other when they both started in 1938. Oh, how convenient. Oh, same year? Yeah. One was started at the Harvard Student Health Service. It was a bunch of Harvard undergrads, sophomores, who were chosen by their deans because they seemed like fine, upstanding young men. And it was to be a study of normal young adult development. So, of course, if you want to study normal adult development, you study all white men from Harvard. (laughs) Like, it's the most politically incorrect research sample you could possibly have. (laughs) But at that time, that's what they chose. We've since expanded, brought in women. and But then the other study, the other group, was a group, as you said, of boys from Boston's poorest neighborhoods. They were all middle schoolers at the time in 1938. And they were studied because they came from some of the most troubled families in the city of Boston. And the question that the researchers had also at Harvard, was why is it that some kids who grow up in families that look like they are destined to fail grow up with two strikes against them? How do these kids stay out of trouble and stay on good developmental paths? What are the factors that foster resilience even in the face of so much disadvantage? And so that was the question guiding the inner city group study. Mm-hmm. And then eventually those two studies were brought together. And now these two groups and their children are studied together. And so can you give us a little bit of a, a summary statistics, if you will, in terms of we've seen a number of, of outcomes and it looks like you have the luxury of, of tracking tons of, of, of different options associated with income and health and death. And so I'm curious just how much of a difference does having that leg up with Harvard make in terms of, of wealth and health and and whatnot. 
It makes a big difference in wealth, certainly. It makes a big difference in health. We think because the Harvard men were more educated and they got the messages sooner that were coming out that smoking is really bad for you. Okay. Alcoholism and drug abuse, really bad for you. Exercise, hugely important. Getting preventive health care, hugely important. So they got those messages. And what we found actually was that 25 of the inner city men, 25 out of 425, mm-hmm. actually went to college and finished college. And those men lived just as long and stayed just as healthy as the Harvard men. Hmm. And we think it's not because they had college diplomas. It's because, first of all, they had the support growing up to get to college and stay in college. And because they had the education that they needed to keep in mind some of the things that were going to set them up for good health as they went through life. Intriguing. Well, so that's one Fascinating little nugget right there. And and you got lots of them. So Bob, I'm going to put it in your court. You're going to be our master curator here. Could you share with us some of the most surprising, fascinating, actionable discoveries that have come about from this research? One great big one that at first we didn't even believe. What we found was that the people who had the warmest closest connections with other people, stayed healthy longer, they lived longer, and they were, of course, happier. So relationships with other people were a huge predictor of health as well as happiness. We didn't even believe it because we thought, well, we know the mind and the body are connected, but how can having good relationships actually get into your body and change your physiology? So we've been studying that for the last 10 years as other groups have as well. And as I said, we didn't believe that at first. And then other research studies began to find the same thing. And when different research studies all point in the same direction, that's when you start to have more confidence in your research findings, that it's not by chance. I remember reading an article, I guess that was your your predecessor, George Valiant, running this study, when interviewed, said that a key takeaway is as he put it, love, full stop. Yeah. That's what it's about. I think the Beatles and (laughs) wisdom traditions have been sharing this message for for quite a while, and now it it bears out in a long-term study, hardcore. Well, that's what's cool about this. I mean, our clergy could tell us this. Our grandparents could tell us this. For centuries back, they've told us this. But the science now says, for those of us who are skeptics and want some data, The data really shows that warm connections with other people make a huge difference in our lives. Well, let's dig into this then. Warm, close relationships. What constitutes warm? What constitutes close? And how do we get more of those going in our lives? Yeah. Well, first of all, let me say it doesn't have to all be close. And we can talk about that later in terms of the different kinds of relationships. But what we've been finding is that everybody needs at least one person who has their back. And that's not always the case. So when our original guys were asked, who could you call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared? Some people could list several people they could call. Some people couldn't list anybody, not a soul on the planet. And some of those people who couldn't list 
anybody were married. Mm. So that what we know is having that sense that there's somebody there who will be there when you really need them, that that's an essential component of well-being, that it makes the world feel safer. Yeah. And one of the things that we're finding is that this seems to have a lot to do with good relationships helping us manage stress. If you think about it, life is full of stressors. You have young kids. I mean, I imagine Mm -hmm. you have stressors every day. Like, oh no, this is happening. Whoa. Mm -hmm. And And when I have something bad happen in my day, I can literally feel my body start to get revved up. Yeah. I go into fight or flight mode. Mm -hmm. My heart rate goes up. And that's okay. We're meant to respond that way when we have stressors. But then when the stressor is gone, the body's meant to come back to equilibrium. And what we find, if I have an upsetting day and I have somebody at home I can talk to or someone I can call up and they're a good listener... I can literally feel my body calm down when I talk to them about my day. What if you don't have anybody in the world? What we think happens is that those people who are lonely or socially isolated stay in this chronic flight or fight mode. And that what that means is they have higher levels of circulating stress hormones. They have higher levels of chronic inflammation. And that those things actually wear away your coronary arteries. They wear away your joints. They break down different body systems. And so we think that what's so valuable about relationships is that they are real stress regulators. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) someone once told me I listened for differences or disagreement. And so, I mean, I think that makes total sense to me. Yeah. Love that. I guess I'm thinking... In the hierarchy of stress regulators, I suppose there are any number of practices from deep breathing to mindfulness to yoga to exercise to hobbies. Do we have a relative sense that are our relationships the ultimate stress buster or is it comparable to, I don't know how, how, if this could be measured, like how does having a great friend or partner you can rely on compare from a stress-relieving asset perspective to a good exercise or or mindfulness routine? I don't think anybody has done those comparisons exactly, but there is a little bit of evidence there. So they did a big analysis of lots of studies of loneliness, and they found that the experience of loneliness, if you're chronically lonely, It's as bad for your health as smoking half a pack of cigarettes a day or being obese. Okay. And we know is that on average, about 30% of people will tell you they're lonely. Yeah. Okay. So that tells me if you you have a good smoking buddy and you only smoke two or three. Uh, but you just kidding just kidding. and you eat a lot of big macs yeah. you know yeah absolutely <laughs> okay well that is handy okay so relationships huge and then zooming into professionals and being awesome at their job i understand there are some takeaways associated with some drivers of differing income levels what's the story here yeah so we're always asking the question does money make us happier And people have actually started to study it. Like, how much does our happiness go up as we make more money? And it turns out that, yes, 
in recent years in the United States, your happiness goes up until your basic needs are met. So until you reach about $75,000 a year in average household income, mm-hmm. until you get to that point, your happiness keeps going up as you make more money. But once you get to that 75 k and you keep making more money, you hardly get a much of a boost in happiness at all. What that means is that once our basic needs are met materially, more money doesn't make us happier. Okay, good to know. Good to know. And then, so that there's the impact of money on happiness. If I'm flipping it around, what are the drivers that you've discovered within the study that tend to explain or point to earning more money, even if, (laughs) as you just said, that's not necessarily going to make us happier? Well, we don't find greater happiness or greater unhappiness. So earning more money isn't bad. It just doesn't make you happier. Mm-hmm. You just have more money. And the, the difficulty is that, as you might know, when they survey young people, like people in their 20s just starting out, and they say, what are you going to prioritize as you go through your adult life? Most of them, the majority will say, I need to get rich. Mm-hmm. So we're giving each other the messages all day long in the media that, boy, if you buy this car, you're going to be happier. If you buy this kind of pasta and serve it to your family, you're going to have the best family dinners ever. Mm -hmm. There's just all these ways in which we are given the messages that if you buy the right stuff, if you have enough money to buy all the right stuff, you'll be happier, you'll have a better life. And it turns out that's not true. Okay, so money doesn't do it. More so warm relationships does it. And then there's also associations with the warm relationships. People who have them also earn more money. (laughs) Yes. Well, it turns out that if you have better relationship skills, you're more successful at work. Mm -hmm. So even when they study this, where they put people on teams and they say, which teams perform best? And it's not the teams that have the highest collective IQ. It's not the smartest folks. It's often the most emotionally attuned and skilled folks because they cooperate better. They are more relaxed and therefore more creative. They're more engaged in their work. They're less competitive. So what we find is that this thing we call emotional intelligence, which involves having better relationship skills, it's hugely predictive of how well you do in your work life. Okay. And then tell us, we have some do's and cultivate close relationships. We've got a don't, don't chase maximum money. What are some other top takeaways in terms of folks who want to be happy, successful, flourish, be awesome at their job? What are some other top things that we recommend they they do do or, or don't do based on these insights from the study? Well, one is don't expect to be happy all the time. Okay. We can get the impression, like when you look at social media and you see what we all present to each other on social media, like me on a great vacation or about to dig into a great plate of food, right? It can look like I'm happy all the time, like I'm always having a party. And what I can tell you from studying thousands of lives is that nobody's happy all the time. And that that's useful because it can seem like other people have it figured out and I don't. And that turns out not to be the case, that everybody has hard times. Everybody struggles with things. And I say that because it can help us feel a little less like an outlier when life isn't always happy. 
Yeah. The other thing we know is that relationships are not always warm and harmonious. Now, you might be the exception, and you and your partner mm-hmm. may never argue ever or disagree ever, but I've never met a person who's in a relationship like that, right? Yeah. So, what we know is that all relationships have conflicts and disagreements. That's not a problem. That what matters is how we work out our disagreements. And if we can find a way to, to work disagreements out so that we come away feeling okay with each other, and like nobody has lost and nobody has won, that's a big help. And to know that as long as there's a bedrock of affection and respect, that relationships are quite solid, even when we argue with each other. Okay. Well, let's expand on some of these best practices then. When it comes to these warm, close relationships, it's okay to have some conflict, some disagreement, but we fall back on having a a fundamental foundation of respect. Got it. What are some other things that make all the difference in terms of cultivating these warm, close relationships? Yeah. Well, one thing probably is curiosity. Like to be genuinely curious about somebody else is a great starter for a relationship. So let's say there's somebody at work and you notice something on their desk and get curious about it. It gives somebody an opportunity to talk about themselves, gives you an opportunity to get to know them in a way you might not otherwise. And it's not just in starting new relationships that curiosity helps. And we do love to talk about ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's old relationships. So you know a coworker or you know your partner, you think you know everything there is to know about them. But actually, you don't. And it turns out that when we start taking each other for granted, we stop paying attention to who the other person is as they grow and develop. So if you can bring that sense of curiosity back to an old relationship, that can really liven it up. Mm -hmm. One of my meditation teachers had an assignment for us once. He said, as you sit there, doing something routine or talking to somebody you've talked to a hundred times, ask yourself this question, what's here now that I've never noticed before? And when you do come with that mindset, it can get really interesting really fast. What's here now? You mean, when you say here, like, what am I noticing? So I'm going to go have dinner with my wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've done that for 36 years, right? A lot of meals together. So what if I come with that mindset? Like what's here right now in our discussion? Or how is she right now that I might not have noticed before? Like if I'm looking for something new, I get really curious. Yeah. And that can set me up in a whole different way than, oh yeah, I know what she's going to say. We're going to have the same dinner. We always have the same conversation, right? Yes, that's good. Our brains love that novelty stuff. And so that really seems to unlock a lot of cool motivation-y, dopamine-y, is that a word? Dopamine-y? dopamine <laughs> things. <laughs> I like that. In the mix. Very cool. And so then, so we can do that in our work relationships. And there's some really cool research associated with the power of having warm, close relationships at work in particular as well, right? Could you expand on that? Yes. The Gallup Organization did a survey of 15 million workers around the globe, all ages, all cultures. And they asked the question, do you have a best friend at work? And what they meant was, do you have somebody you can talk to about your personal life at work? Now, 
Many CEOs think that's a distraction. You don't want that kind of socializing. Well, it turned out that only 30% of workers said they had a friend at work, but those workers were seven times more likely to be engaged in their jobs. They were better at engaging customers if they were customer-facing. They produced higher quality work. They were happier in their jobs, and they were less likely to leave their jobs because the job wasn't as interchangeable because they had a friend there they wanted to see. Mm -hmm. So, And the people who didn't have a best friend at work, so seven out of 10 people, they were 12 times as likely to be checked out of their work, to be disengaged. Okay, there you have it. And I also remember that alcohol was something that came up in the study as being potentially quite destructive. What's the takeaway here? Big time. Alcoholism, that means abuse, dependence. It destroys people's families. It destroys their work life. So the people who became alcoholics in our study had marriages that fell apart. Half of the marriages that ended in divorce had one or both partners stuck in alcoholism. And what we found was that the people who were abusing alcohol chronically had a downward trajectory at work. They couldn't perform well. They didn't get promoted. Even if they didn't get fired, they plateaued pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, so how do we make sure that doesn't happen to us? I mean, you enjoy a beverage from time to time. Any pro tips? Because if you're watching people year after year after year, that's an interesting vantage point in terms of, oh, this is kind of creeping in there. And I guess, one, how do you precisely measure that? You ask them, how many drinks do you have? Or like, what is, are there any warning signs? So if we enjoy a happy hour, how can we make sure we don't lose control slipping away over the decades and, and fall into this category? Yeah, key questions. So we measure it in different ways. So one way of measuring it is how many drinks do you have? Mm -hmm. And for men, two drinks max a day is all that really is okay for your health. And for women, it's one drink because physiologically they process alcohol differently. But another way to think about this, if you're just thinking, am I drinking too much, is to ask the people who care about you. Ask them if they're worried about your drinking. Do you feel guilty about your drinking? Do you try to cut down and have trouble? Do you find that it's getting in the way of your getting up in the morning and making it to work or making it to your parenting activities or whatever they might be? If it's getting in the way of your life, then it's probably a problem. All right, Bob, anything else we really should know about the study, its insights, and being awesome at your job? I think just to think about work as not so separate from the rest of your life. But to really let yourself say, okay, how could I enjoy myself more at work? Particularly, how could I have better connections with other people? Because I'll have more fun at work if I do that. Okay. Well then, now I'd love to hear a little bit about your favorite things. Could you share a favorite quote? Something you find inspiring? Mm, yes. There's a quote by Joseph Campbell. He's a guy who wrote a book called The Power of Myth. And he was like a PBS guy. And he had a quote that I love, which is, if the path before you is clear, you're probably on somebody else's path. Hmm. That has really helped me. When I keep thinking, oh, I really should do that because everybody else is doing it, or that's what seems to get the most applause, it's really helpful to be reminded that 
everybody's doing their own thing. Everybody's taking their own path through life. And I've seen that studying these lives over decades. Mm-hmm. Well, next, I want to ask you about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research. You're intimately involved in a legendary one. Any others that leap to mind? Yeah. When we ask people how they spend their discretionary income, so you've got all your needs met, right? And then you have some income. What are you going to do with it? And are you happier if you buy material things or if you pay for experiences? And paying for experiences could be tickets to a basketball game or taking your family on a trip or what it could be anything, but experiences. Mm-hmm. And what they find is that the people who use their money to pay for experiences are happier and they stay happier longer than the people who buy material things. Okay. Thank you. And a favorite book? Well, actually, one of my really favorite books is so old school, is Pride and Prejudice. I just love that book. Another favorite book is The Overstory by Richard Powers. It's about ecology, but it's a really cool novel. Mm-hmm. And there's a book by a Zen teacher, Barry Magid, M-A-G-I-D, called Ending the Pursuit of Happiness. Okay. And a favorite tool, something you used to be awesome at your job? A favorite tool is serving lunch. Okay. (laughs) People really like to be fed and they loosen up and they get more creative when they're sharing a meal. Okay. So you are the the lunch provider. Yep. For my research group and they love it. Well, now I want to know what sort of lunches we're talking about here. Oh, we get takeout. We get Mexican. We get Thai. Oh, sure. We get healthier stuff too. Okay. And a favorite habit? Favorite habit is going for a walk every day and looking at simple stuff like trees. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And a key nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks, they quote it back to you often? It's a quote from a, a 19th century writer. He said, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Yes, I just saw that written in some random decor somewhere. I thought, huh. I like that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because it's like, you know, it doesn't look like it from the outside, but everybody's got stuff. Mm -hmm. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Well, to our book. So thegoodlifebook.com, you can order the book, but also to our website. There's a a website about the study. It's adultdevelopmentstudy.org. Mm-hmm. So adult development study, all one word, dot O-R-G. And there you can read some of our highly technical papers and learn more about the study. All right. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yes. Think about somebody you'd like to connect with more at work and reach out to them and ask them to have coffee, take a walk, do something, reach out, make a commitment to do that tomorrow. And just notice it's a small decision and notice the ripple effects. Notice what comes back to you from that small action. All right, Bob, this has been a treat. I wish you much happiness and goodness in life. And you too. I envy you having small kids. I miss that time. My kids are in their 30s and they're wonderful, but I really miss the time when the kids were young. I really love Bob's question there. What's here now that I've never noticed? Get a little bit of that extra interest and curiosity brewing. Strengthen those relationships. Keep it fresh and interesting instead of dull and boring and taking folks for granted. 
That and more goodies from Bob. Again, the show notes, the transcript, and the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP830. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 